This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And tomorrow is International Women's Day. The theme this year is Pledge for Parity. And uh, we've invited Mary Crooks to come in and celebrate with us. She's Exec Director of the Victorian Women's Trust. And thanks for coming in, Mary. And a, a very worthy um, theme for this year because we still don't have wage parity. No, we don't have wage parity and we're moving at glacial speed on wage parity. And I think Zelda, reading that great article this morning, and I've seen that photo of Zelda Deprano chained to the Commonwealth Building in the 1960s. There she is at 88, and she's now urging uh, women to get militant. And, and I mean, what are the, the sort of um, the, the differences are currently with regards to, to wage wages in Australia? Oh, it's about 18% on average, the pay gap. And it's getting, it's actually increasing, it's not reducing. Oh, I didn't realise that. I thought we'd actually improved it somewhat. No, no, no. Through just the last couple of years, the stats are showing that it's actually just bulging out again. Yeah. And I read in, in that article mm-hmm. in the age that um, at, at current rate, but I suppose if it's increasing, that might not be the case, but it would take 150 to 160 years to, to close that gap. Well, it's interesting because, you know, there was Zelda. She's now 88. She's been campaigning since the 1960s. But prior to her, there were women such as Muriel Hegney who campaigned for five decades of her life for equal pay, uh, and Muriel died, I think, relatively poor in St Kilda in 1972, around about the same time as the Arbitration Commission endorsed the principle of equal pay. So there's someone like Muriel who, incidentally, you know, on the eve of International Women's Day, she was the classic case of someone who benefited from women becoming enfranchised because she was able to enter the, the whole political community, uh, you know, from the 20s, 30s, 40s onwards because women were gradually being able to get into the political domain. And are there some uh, industries or, or workplaces, uh, sectors that are worse for women's parity than others? Do we know, Mary? Look, it's, uh, it's, it's, a really co- it's quite complex and some sectors are and you can expect the sectors where, where women uh, are in gender terms are dominant, so in you know, particular community sectors and so on. Um, but, you know, there's still systemic problems across our culture around the, the pay issue, issues of unconscious bias, of just being a woman is a factor in its own right, according to one survey by KPMG a couple of years ago. I think that accounted for about 28% of what they saw as the gender pay gap was literally that just because you're a woman. It's a complex one. It is. It's interesting because I, I also remember um, recently reading an article regarding women who actually have decided they're going to ask for pay rises because we've heard for a long time the, well, the, the reason why women in some instances aren't paid as much is because they don't advocate for their skills enough and they don't go put you know put themselves out there for pay rises. And then it was found that women that do put themselves forward, actually it doesn't benefit them necessarily. They just end up with the confrontation and not necessarily the result. And I, I wonder um, why that is. Look, while you're talking, I was thinking back. I've just spent the weekend in northeastern Victoria um, uh, assisting Cathy McGowan in her campaign to to win another term as an independent in northeast Victoria. But I went up there because they were screening suffragette uh, in Swanpool and in Albury. Uh, and I spoke after each screening. And, uh, you know, it's fresh in my mind that that you know there were there were these women from you know the most 
horrendous working conditions in the UK in laundries, uh, you know, with just earning a pittance and, of course, sort of handing it over to their husband. Uh, and and very much this, the, the whole desire for women to become enfranchised, as shown in that film and, indeed, in the suffrage movement here, in large part was just to try and arrest the shocking conditions around e- economy and household economy and you know, average number of live births, you know, sort of seven live births per woman. I mean, so the whole equal pay history of the struggle is actually a struggle not just about pay parity, it's actually a struggle about the status of being a woman in our society. And that film um, directed by uh, Sarah Gavron um, being screened in in, um, Melbourne and uh, you say you've you've spoken at a couple of the screenings. What does the film depict? Uh, Look, I really urge if people haven't seen it, it's a must-see in my view. And I, you know, I joke and say to people, it's sort of understandable that we've waited 90 years for a film about the suffrage movement because there's been a lot of very important films that have had to be made like The Terminator and, you know, Mad Max (laughs) even. Um, But look, what it depicts, I think, because the UK women, they became enfranchised in... 1928, so they actually became enfranchised about a quarter of a century after we did it across the colonies here and federally in 1902. So there's great points of similarity uh, between the UK and here, but there's also great points of difference because there was a militancy about the UK movement that simply wasn't the same here. And you know, that's an interesting question in its own right too because I suspect that it goes to the really, really oppressive class system of England as distinct from a more liberal democratic ethos post-Goldfields and Peter Layler. And, but, and it's interesting because the, the um, class difference here was largely in terms of the 18 bills that went in the Victorian Parliament 18 times it took to have Victorian women become enfranchised and every time the bills were knocked off largely because of the sort of the men in the squatocracy in the upper house in in the Victorian colonial parliament so there wasn't the same militancy but there were uh, very very similar differences in terms of great partnerships between men and women uh, but also uh, marriages breaking up because men were not able to handle the politicising of of their wives. There was this whole notion, you know, women being scorned and mocked and pilloried. Uh, a lot of the suffrage movement in England, in America and here uh, was very much a story of thousands and thousands of what I call little women. I don't mean that disparagingly, but, you know, the women in the laundries, the women in the typing pools, women in Carlton, women in Bensdale, you know, the monster petition in Victoria, for example, that uh, if you go down to the little green pocket behind Parliament in MacArthur Place, there's this wonderful, wonderful, huge flowing sculpture. A lot of people wouldn't realise that that's actually the monster petition representing it in 1891, when the Premier at the time said to the Women's Christian Temperance Union delegation, do you want the vote for propertied women or for all women? And they just said to him, Premier, we want the same rights and privileges as our brothers. It was pretty simple. Yeah, pretty simple. And he said to them, I'm not sure that women want the vote. And so within five weeks, those women and hundreds of others, they went all around the colony of Victoria in five weeks without any public transport, horse and cart and feet, and they collected over 30,000 signatures 
I've downloaded the census data for that time and those 30,000 and more signatures on the petition represented about 10% of the adult female population in the colony. Fantastic. That petition, they, they glued everything, all the paper, onto um, material 200 metres long. Had to, it took two grown men to carry it in to the parliament. It was the biggest petition taken up. I mean, they create stories, you know, but stories also just quickly of partnership. It's a little-known fact that when the South Australian men, they enfranchised women in South Australia in 1894 after New Zealand. When they were in negotiations to form the federation of this nation, the men uh, responsible for, for the negotiations, they weren't even thinking about the political rights of women. It wasn't on their radar the South Australian men said, "We're back. We don't want our women in South Australia to be able to vote in South Australia, but not vote in the fed Federation. So unless you enfranchise women in this new fledgling nation, we're walking. What yeah, a great well, story. Yeah, really interesting. And I, I wonder, I mean, just going back to, to uh, Zelda Soprano in the, in the Age this morning, she's urging women now to get militant about pay parity. And I wonder um, what that might mean in the current context. Well, look, um, you know, in the context of the suffragette film, it means actually dressing up as a bloke and walking along early in the street and putting bombs in letterboxes um, and, uh, and bombing Lloyd you George's home. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, dare it be suggested that I've endorsed um, that kind of, of um, civil disobedience and indeed you know, um, acts against property. I think what I think Zelda's call is a really important one in the sense you can be militant in a lot of other ways, in the sense of really ramping up your demands uh, and being able to use a whole lot of civil protests and a whole lot of, of um, quite powerful deputations and delegations. So I think, I think Zelda's call is an important one and we should respect it. I think she's been an absolutely fierce and wonderful warrior uh, and, and, you know, we do stand women and men, but women especially, we stand on the shoulders of giants who have come before us. And it's worth, it's worth thinking tomorrow on International Women's Day, you know, what, what are we going to do in, in this year and the rest to really press on in terms of gender equity, not just in terms of pay parity, but representation, women's safety, economic security. And keeping in mind those, um, the way that this, the suffrage movement played out in, in Australia and the UK, as you spoke about, as depicted in the film and, and the US, uh, are we sort of um, in developed sort of Western countries in vastly different positions with regard to pay gaps for women, the way women are represented? Well, you know, so Dylan, it's actually a bit of a sad fact. At the end of Suffragette, um, there's a chronology which shows New Zealand first and 1900 to Australia. And it's quite interesting that France, for example, enfranchised women in 1944, so almost half a century after us, and yet they have gender parity in their cabinet. They have an equal representation in their cabinet. And what have we got? Five women. And, and even then, you know, that, that, uh, we had a 100% increase in the representation of women from, from Abbott to uh, Turnbull. So we've got a long way to go still in terms of representation equally across corporates, across community sector agencies, across our political parties. Um, 
And there are countries, sadly, uh, from our point of view, there are countries, developing countries around the world, who are streeting us when it comes to gender equity measures. I feel as though we have actually... I think, I've, I think we've reached a point over the last 10, 10 to 15 years where we're stagnating in some important ways around gender equity and I think, yeah, you know, we should take a leaf out of Zelda's book and just get, get marching again, you know, on, on the move. We're not there yet. So why are we stagnating, do you think? Oh, again, that's a complex question. I, I think, uh, in part... My hunch, you know, from the work I've done around switching time and what, whatever in the Gillard era, I think we are a much more sort of deeply rooted blokey um, patriarchal culture than we care to admit. And I think that, you know, the, the dominance of, of a sort of a, a white, Caucasian white male, uh, educated male political class uh, that pushes back pushes back on the question of gender equity when it comes to the crunch. And I just think we've got a fair bit of erosion to do of that kind of political culture before we can see true and equal representation of women. Mary Crooks is our guest, Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust, and uh, it is International Women's Day tomorrow, and the theme this year, and there's a theme every year, it's Pledge for Parity, um, and uh, at the moment we're sitting at an 18% um, pay gap between men and women uh, in Australia around that, and um, in some industries I imagine it's more, in others less, and um, talking about you know why this is still there uh, as an issue, and I wonder, I mean, are there any sort of active policies, Mary, that are in place at the moment to try and deal with this gender pay gap or have we stagnated on that as well? No, we haven't. There's some, you know, there's some really important initiatives underway and there are some, you know, there are, there are certainly some progressive corporates who have understood, uh, you know, that the closing of the pay gap is actually not simply about um, equalising uh, talent and so on. It's, there's still a lot of companies and governments in this country of ours who haven't understood that even at the bottom line, from a business point of view, it makes sense to close the gap because because you actually are properly rewarding and supporting the talent um, of a lot of pool, a, a talent pool in your company. Um, the research is in. It's unequivocal that the business case for diversity. Uh, is is uh, is positive, and you know if the the companies that have been surveyed that when they've closed the gender gap in their companies at a senior level, that it's that that then leads to taking the lid off the issues of pay and pay inequity. But the bottom line for a company, if they get it right in terms of gender equity at the senior level and close the gap, they're actually doing better. Uh, in terms of by their shareholders, they're doing better as a business. So it's not just a human or political rights question. It's actually good for the economy if you close that gap. And I guess, as we've alluded to, it's a cultural question as well with, I mean, vastly more mothers take parental leave than, than fathers do, and that's just kind of an accepted thing in, in our society and many workplaces. So that, I imagine, plays into a pay gap as well. If yes, it does. And, but, you know, I mean, I, I think also... You know, at the same time, it would be a pity just to focus on the gender equity pay gap because, you know, one of the one of the challenges I think in terms of um, economic security for women, there are many, many thousands of Australian women who aren't even in the superannuation system. You know, women who are in the casualised parts of the workforce, in part, again, stemming back 
to their primary care, you know, the the, the role. Um, but you know, we've got we've got huge inequities in our superannuation system in this country, and yet currently the debate uh, is really about uh, lopping off certain uh, incentives, uh, tax incentives from the top, from the wealthy. But we should really be opening up the super debate. If it's meant to be a universal and a fair system, well, it's not universal when an awful lot of women aren't even in it. And it's not fair if women actually uh, don't enjoy the same compounding of interest uh, as, uh, as, as men do, which is one reason why the superannuation, uh, average superannuation, for example, at the moment is about half. That women's average superannuation balance is about half that of an Australian man. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, it's, it's paying, it's, it's sort of um, playing out now too, isn't it? We're seeing a lot more older women in poverty and in housing stress and the like than we are men, not only because women on average live longer, but because of this issue around um, around savings and, and um, financial savings. But you've been working um, at the Trust with sporting clubs. Tell us about what you're doing there. Uh, well... I, th- I think I might have mentioned to you before we've we designed a program called Be the Hero many years ago now and and uh, Paul Zappa has been working with us to roll that out across the community with great success and then it was sort of the only uh, web-based program to support boys to make choices that didn't have violence in their lives in their relationships but Paul and I for years have been saying look it's not enough you know it's great to do all this work with high schools and private schools and in the you know criminal justice system but it's not enough and we've been cudgeling our brains about how to affect more cut through uh, and so we came up with this idea of club respect and we just we've we've just been awarded a grant from the Buckland Foundation which will enable us to pull it off in the next two years and effectively what we want to try and do we asked ourselves if you wanted to build a deep culture of respect where there was no room for violence violent attitudes or behaviors towards women and girls what would be the best avenue to go down and we just said it's a no-brainer in this country it would be australian sport all clubs all codes all levels so what we're going to try and do is build the framework sort of document thing that enables clubs, whether it's at the back of Cobden or in Brunswick, whether it's soccer or netball or rugby or baseball, but to build the kind of framework that enables people to see that it's not just about importing a respectful relationships program on its own. It's about how you govern yourselves as a club. It's about having the policies, the practices. So if, for example, there's a woman who might be abusing kids from the sidelines, you know, last Saturday in here, you know, near um, 3 R, what does the host club do about her without escalating that violence? How can they actually create an environment in which that behaviour is simply ruled out as not appropriate She's not punished so much, but she stops doing it because she's she's actually been shown a different way of behaving in her in her sporting domain. We're really excited about club respect, and we should talk about it down the track, maybe. We should, and thank you so much for coming in, Mary. Um, and it's always good to see you. And we'll catch you again soon, Mary Crooks. Uh, she's executive director of Victoria Women's Trust. They're always doing lots of things, but today, um, celebrating International Women's Day, uh, it's tomorrow, and uh, the Pledge for Parity. So um, I suppose get. Militant, everybody <laughs> around parity. 
I'm sure many of you would be familiar with Kate Grenville's novel The Secret River. Published in 2005, it tells a fictionalised story of a convict, William Thornhill, who attempts to establish a life with his family on a plot of land beside the Hawkesbury River. Difficulties arise, however, when it becomes apparent that the land is not his to claim, with a local Aboriginal tribe depending on the land for sustenance and survival. The novel has picked up a host of awards and is included in the high school curriculum, and in 2013 was turned into a theatrical production by Sydney Theatre Company. That year, it picked up a swag of Helpman Awards, including Best Play and Best New Australian Work. Now, the play is back for an encore season at Arts Centre Melbourne, kicking off this Thursday. To chat about it, we have on the line Andrew Bovell, who adapted the play for the theatre. Andrew is a highly accomplished writer for the stage and screen, whose credits include Lantana, Strictly Ballroom and a host of others as, as well. Andrew, thanks so much for being there and speaking to us today on Triple R. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what is it about The Secret River that um, you kind of think makes such an apt theatrical adaptation? Oh, yeah, I think it's kind of one of the great um, untold stories in, in Australia, really. You know, for, for so long that this particular history of conflict between black and white has been hidden um, or our kind of national consciousness has been silent on the question and, and Kate's story really um, has opened the door uh, in a way that makes that history very accessible and immediate. So, you know, it's one of the great stories to tell. And so how did you decide, I guess, what to include in the story and what to leave out for a theatrical production? Because um, obviously novels can be a lot denser and cover a lot more ground than you can yeah. in, in a theatre play of you know a couple of hours duration. How did you make those decisions? Well, it took us a long time to make them because so Neil Armfield, the director, and myself and Stephen Page, the associate director, spent about two years really investigating the novel and making those, exactly those decisions. But the two big differences between the stage work and the novel are firstly that we begin the story here in Australia where the novel actually, um, a large part of the novel is set in London. But we really felt that the most immediate part of the story in terms of an Australian audience was when William Thornhill, the central character, arrives in Australia and that kind of very... Um, incredible meeting between black and white indigenous and european takes place so we began it there um and that was the first big shift the, the second one really was to give the indigenous characters the darug family in the play um the darug is the indigenous community around the hawkesbury river to actually give them more presence and more life in the story so in the novel Kate kind of keeps those people at a distance and describes them very much through European eyes, um, through, through the white settlers' eyes. And in the play, of course, you can't have Aboriginal actors up in the corner being silent. They've got to have a life, they've got to have a reason to be in the story, they've got to have motivations and, and an interior life. So really we had to find a language to express that in. And we were able to do that through the collaboration with a Dara girl at Pelda called Richard Green, who helped us develop the language and really the storylines and the characters for the, for the Aboriginal people in the story. And it's a really fascinating point, I think, because Kate Grenville herself has said that, you know, she didn't really, I suppose, seek to reveal a great deal about the Aboriginal people in the Secret River because she couldn't suppose to speak from their perspective and fully understand what life would have been like. And hence, it is presented us through the character of William Thornhill. But 
stage and and theatre is different because you're dealing with actors, you're, you're collaborating with people. Um, what was that process like in in including Aboriginal characters in your story that aren't really all there in the book? Yeah, well, it is. You know, there's a kind of set of cultural sensitivities around how you approach these stories, and you can only do so in collaboration and with the co- cooperation of, of Aboriginal people themselves. So so firstly, you go to the people who have um, authority over the kind of place that you're trying to talk about. So that was, we had to find the, the direct people that would help us do that and give us the permission to do that. But also, you're bringing on board a um, group of Indigenous actors and through their generosity, because this is a very confronting story. You know, there wasn't a reading or rehearsal process where we we got through to the end without somebody breaking down in tears. And all the actors on stage, but particularly the Indigenous characters, carry a great responsibility in this show to give this audience to a, give this story to an audience. And they take on, you know, they take on. Um, that task with with great respect and great sensitivity but really it's the collaboration with that group of people um, that allow in a way they take us back so that we can tell our own history and that by by our own I mean um, our white history our European history because this this isn't um, an indigenous story it's not told from their point of view it's really a story about what happened when um, European arrived, Europeans arrived in this country. And you speak there about the responsibility of the actors, Andrew. How did that casting process take place then? Was it quite an involved process? Mm. Well, Neil um, Armfield, who's one of our you know, leading, leading directors, he said from the start, he said to me, Andrew, we will have equal numbers of white characters and Indigenous Darug characters on stage. And I said, yeah, but Neil, there aren't enough parts you know there isn't enough and he said we'll create them make them let's so that was a very important decision so that just that equal presence between white and black on stage already starts informing the story you're going to tell because it becomes my task to make sure everybody has a stake in the story but you know we've got some wonderful indigenous actors um in this country uh and on this production we're joined particularly by Kelton Pell, um, who's a Noongar actor from WA, Nigley Lawford-Wolf, who's one of our senior actors um, from the Kimberley, and um, also Francis Tubalung, who um, is from the top end. And these people bring great weight, great authenticity um, to what they're doing, and they're, they're just fantastic actors, so we're so lucky to have them with us. And I wonder about your um, your relationship with Kate Grenville and, and the process of adapting a book, because obviously novelists invest a huge amount of time and effort in, in crafting a story and telling it in a particular way. How has she responded to, to your adaptation? She's been incredibly generous uh, and supportive in the whole process. And, you know, she's early she sort of confessed to me that she wasn't a great fan of the theatre. And I thought, oh, this is going to be tricky. <laughs> But, you know, she fell in love with the play. The first, she came to a rehearsal and she was so moved by what she saw that um, she kept coming back. And I think she's seen the show about, you know, um, half a dozen or a dozen times. Um, It's very, 
you know, she, she kind of understands that it's another creature, um, that it has taken her great story and made it into something else, but she's really supported that process. And, and has it evolved in its telling, Andrew, as it's been shown um, quite a number of times now? Has, has the mm. play itself evolved? It's, it's just so great to get a second chance at something. We don't often get that chance here in Australia. So, And to get a second chance at such a big show, like there's 20 people on stage. So, um, so yeah, we, we were able to re-look at it and fix the things that we felt we didn't quite get right first time round. And there's no doubt in my mind that it's an even stronger show. I mean, it was a very powerful show to begin with. Um, but also Neil, I think, as a director, just being able to have a, another go, he's, he's even heightened the work even more. We are speaking with uh, writer and playwright Andrew Boval all about his adaptation of The Secret River, which is playing at Arts Centre Melbourne starting this week. And some of the debates um, surrounding The Secret River, Andrew, were around, I suppose, the role of a novelist um, writing historical fiction uh, as opposed to a historian telling history and things that came before. And Inga Clendinen famously wrote a quarterly essay kind of unpacking those, those different roles. Um, and The Secret River began as a non-fiction book that Kate Grenville was writing about her ancestors. But I wonder in your adaptation, when you're kind of tweaking the story and making changes and including new characters, are you engaging with history? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think this whole work is very much informed by historian Henry Reynolds and um, his collection of works that really gave us a way um, to to look back um, at the frontier wars and to reconsider them and their impact and their legacy in a way. So as a writer, I certainly um, go heavily into the research, um, into the historical research, but I'm a fiction writer. I make stuff up. That's my job. Now, you, you don't... You don't pull it out of your own head. You, you're very careful in what you're basing that on. But, you know, fictions are a more kind of visceral and imaginative form. Um, history's obviously drier. So the tasks, the tasks are different but complementary. Um, I understand Inga's uh, criticism, um, but, you know, that's, that's a kind of debate that doesn't really concern us in the theatre because we are storytellers and our storytellers um, are informed by, by fact, but they're, they're acts of, of fiction. And it's interesting that as part of this uh, this showing at, at Arts Centre Melbourne, there are a couple of historical events that take place after the after the show as well. There's one um, discussion including Tony Birch, Rolf Dahir, yourself, Rachel Mazza, um, Lydia Miller as well. And I um, that sounds like a really exciting thing to be doing. I think it's uh, yeah, it's really rare to get that collection of people on stage uh, or on, on a platform um, to talk about this issue, which was really essential. Like, how do we, uh, how do we address our history, uh, both from an Indigenous and a white point of view, and how do those points of view complement each other, but also how do they... Um, what are the tensions between those two perspectives? I, I think it's, you know, it's a really good one to, for people to attend who are interested in this kind of area. Um, Andrew, best of luck with um, the encore season here in Melbourne. Um, it looks like a really fantastic production, and um, thanks for talking to us today on Triple R. Thanks so much.
And we're going to be talking about affordable housing. Is retaining tax benefits to housing investors through negative gearing helping keep Melbourne's housing unaffordable and out of reach of first home buyers. We've had a lot of argy-bargy along these lines from Federal Parliament in the past week as governments accuse, as the government accuses Labor of trying to lower the asset prices of homes um, by curtailing negative gearing to new homes. We've um, asked Carolyn Wiseman to help us understand what's going on. She's um, Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne and Carolyn, thanks for coming in and I wonder um, the way that you view negative gearing, is it part of the problem for affordable housing or is it part of the solution? Well, the main thing about um, negative gearing, Kalia, is that it's a really huge government investment. It's a government investment in um, income that it's not taking in. Uh, it costs about $36 billion, so at least $3 billion a year. Then the question comes, could that money be better used. And part of the problem with the current debate on negative gearing is that it's being seen as a way to cut back taxes. So as a um, uh, as a tax, if negative gearing is intended to increase the affordability of rental properties, which is part of the way that it was sold, as well as an investment, uh, a mechanism to encourage Australians to invest, it doesn't work. The vast majority of negative gearing um, uh, revenue uh, or uh, non-payment of taxes goes to quite rich people. But the problem with the debate right now is that it's talking about clawing back negative gearing instead of putting a um, small amount of uh, the um, new tax revenue that would be gained from clawing back negative gearing for, for instance, very high-income people into affordable housing. So I come at it from affordable housing. Affordable housing for low-income people isn't really going to happen without a direct or an indirect subsidy, and I'd like to see some of that negative gearing money if there's going to be movement on negative gearing to go towards affordable housing. So to some extent, I'm kind of doing a plague on both your houses with both um, the Labour and the coalition governments. Who benefits, um, Carolyn, from from homes being high in price. So we, we heard with the assessment of the ALP's policy that we'll probably see housing prices drop about 2% or so if, mm-hmm. if the negative gearing incentives are changed. And I wonder who benefits from or who, who doesn't benefit from that? Who, who kind of um, is impacted because surely we've seen prices for housing rise and fall for many different reasons for a long time and mostly rise for yeah. the past 10 years. Yeah. Uh, actually, house prices have been going up pretty steadily since the 1990s and uh, even the 1980s in um, Australia from about three times average median income to about seven times average um, annual median income. So that's a huge... Australia is one of the least affordable places to buy a home in the world, and there's sort of international studies that show that. It's pretty simple who benefits and who doesn't benefit. Who benefits are people who own homes, and and um, uh, over 60% of Australians own homes. Um, people who benefit a lot are people who own lots of homes. And about 11% of Australian households own more than one home. So that's a pretty significant number of people who are benefiting in some way from uh, negative gearing. And as I say, the more homes you own, the more negative gearing um, uh, that you write off, the better off you are, which is why it benefits highest income people. The people who don't benefit from uh, negative gearing 
are people who don't own homes, and particularly people who are interested in eventually owning homes. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose in many ways that's obvious, but that said, a lot of people who own homes also have children yep. or grandchildren yep. uh, or friends who don't own homes. So perhaps it's not as simple as, um, you know, when we hear the politics of it, when when we hear that your home price is in, in danger um, by a change in policy, many people would welcome homes dropping a little in, in price. That's a really interesting Cal, uh, issue, Kelly, and I've sort of been stepping back from this debate and comparing it with the public transport debate. Actually, the majority, majority of Australians don't use public transport. A lot more would use public transport if it was easy and convenient and um, relatively cheaper than it now is. Somehow public transport, at least in the Victorian state level, has become an us issue. It affects everybody. Affordable housing is still a them issue. It affects some them. And definitely part of the way to win over hearts and minds is to say, will your kids ever be able to move out? Um, do you want your parents to um, have a place that they can age in in place? And basically to create a kind of culture where there's other forms of investment other than housing, because housing is preponderantly the form of um, investment that people hope will be safe, that will continue to gain in val value. But even though there's been this long boom in Australian housing prices, we've seen from the US and Europe and other parts of the world that it's a kind of shaky palace that can go down really quickly. And I guess part of the uh, issue, and I'm sorry if I'm getting too philosophical for people in the morning, is uh, that housing has a use. You live in it. It's basic. It's shelter. You need it. But then it also has an exchange value, which is um, if you treat housing like a commodity and it's a way to build profit and it's a way to build savings, then you're going to have a different attitude towards it than if it's something that you need and you're going to use. So again, it's almost a cultural shift that needs to take place in Australia to make rental housing a little bit less unacceptable, just like you know Margaret Thatcher once said, oh, if you're taking the bus when you're 30, you're a failure. Well, you know, there's still this notion. I didn't that know she said that. Yeah, she had many great sayings. Um, uh, uh, you know, if you don't own a home by the time you're 30, you're a failure. I mean, we've got to kind of confront that um, uh, head on because a lot of people, including me, have been renters for most of their lives, and we haven't, um, you know, had disastrous lives. I grew up in a flat in an apartment, and I didn't have a deprived childhood because I grew up in a flat. So there's a certain amount of sort of um, cultural shift that needs to to take place but right now the whole thing about negative gearing is it's about um, you have this uh, housing as an investment that investment needs to gain in value or else you're going to be shafted and you're going to do everything you can as an individual to defend that constantly growing investment. How much control does the government have ultimately over housing affordability? Because it seems like with these debates that focus on negative gearing, superannuation, um, or capital gains tax concessions, sorry, I should say, um, is focused on that, mm. that notion of investment and, and rental properties being available to people at not too high a price. But, but how much control can the government have over that? And, and is it aware of the control it can have? That's a super good question, Dylan. I mean, you know, the problem is that, um, well, not the problem, the, the fact 
fact is that 95% of the housing in the market is produced by the private sector. In fact, it's closer to 98% these days because there's been decreasing investment in non-market housing. Uh, so what some of the things that the government can do is recognize that for, say, 11% of Melburnians who earn um, 30% or less of the median income in the area, they're going to have to be paying about $100 a week in rent and 88% of those people, so nearly 9 out of 10, are in what's called housing stress. They're paying too much of their income and have choices like pay the rent or feed the kids. Uh, So there does need to be the recognition that some people are going to need subsidy. And the subsidy can be direct through public housing. It can be indirect through low-income housing tax credits, which was a program brought in in 1988 in the United States by that noted left-wing radical um, uh, Ronald Reagan and has existed since then. And that's a tax break to build low-income housing. And it's pretty well regulated. In fact, it's regulated by the tax system and um, has worked to create about 3 million units in the U.S. over the last um, 20-plus years. So um, the government has some role in um, filling the needs of those lowest-income people. And then another thing that governments can do that has pretty light subsidy is to really support um, uh, average income rental um, uh, apartments. And again, there's a whole bunch of mechanisms that um, can be used. Inclusionary zoning is actually a pretty effective um, mechanism to get um, moderate income rental. It isn't um, good alone for uh, creating low-income rental because you need ongoing subsidy. Uh, but um, there's a whole bunch of things that the government, um, both the state and federal government, can do. To some extent, local government can do. Um, but I guess the first uh, trick would be to come up with a, a affordable housing strategy that was upfront about some of the deficits that are there, um, made a, a difference between people who are on very low income who need certain kinds of housing programs and average income people who need other kinds of very light subsidy incentives in the market or regulation in the market, um, and then proceed onwards. And unfortunately, neither the state government nor the Commonwealth government have that kind of plan right now. And in fact, at both the state government level and at the Commonwealth government level, there's about 13 different arms of the government that in some way think that they have something to do with housing, but there's no coordination of those multi-arms. Well, we heard from our, our former treasurer that it's um, you know as simple as getting a good job that pays well to kind of own your own home in, in, in a Melbourne or Sydney. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, some of the um, housing is dealt with through social services. Some of it is specifically for people with disabilities. Some of it's for victims of family violence, etc., etc., etc. At the Commonwealth level, at the state level, um, the treasurer here, Tim Pallas, uh, has a strong interest in housing affordability. Obviously, the Minister for Housing has a stock, uh, stock of social housing. Um, the planning minister's interested. Uh, VicTrack might be interested. Places Victoria is kind of interested. The Metropolitan Planning Authority is kind of interested, etc., etc., etc. But nobody's much. sort of bringing it all together. Yeah. And part of the issue is who do you even talk to about these issues? You're, you're, you end up talking to like 11 people at once. Well, and also we end up with a discussion around affordability that's centred on the tax incentives for for 
people to negative gear. So it ends up being quite a, a, a narrow discussion, I suppose. And I wonder, just going by what you were saying then, I mean, what, what step would you recommend we take to, to bring together a strategy like that that might actually kind of deal with the issues of people that are owning homes, um, people who are renting, those in housing stress? I mean, we need to to make a start somewhere, don't we? Well, at the Commonwealth level, there are quite a few good studies. There was one done last year by a by, bipartisan group of the Senate, um, that, uh, an inquiry into um, affordable housing. It had great implementable recommendations. So the trick of the Commonwealth government is to actually take those recommendations and go forward with them. Right now, the Commonwealth government's talking about yet another study. So just, you know, not to quote Nike or anything, but just do it at the Commonwealth level because they have 80% of the taxes. They're the, they're the you know elephants in the room. At the state level, they're are some different mechanisms and they're being addressed in, again, about 13 different ways at the moment. Um, The state level is talking about an integrated um, strategy and if the state government was to come up with an integrated strategy that had actual numeric targets and actual programs knit together with the goal of affordable housing for everyone, I think it might be able to shame the Commonwealth Mm. government into doing something similar. (laughs) For those that hear the debate raging you know, at that federal level is, uh, I mean, from where you sit, should people support the kind of policy that the ALP is coming up with, which is to have a look at negative gearing and bring it back to just being on new homes? Is this going to get us somewhat, you know, somewhere towards a more housing, uh, affordable housing stock? Look, it'll get us somewhere towards an affordable housing stock, but people tend to focus in on one particular mechanism. So at the Commonwealth level right now, the mechanism's negative gearing. At the state level right now, it's inclusionary zoning. I'm not saying those aren't important and those aren't a start, but, you know, I'm a planner. And when you're a planner, you start off with a vision of where you want to be and you look at a range of strategies and hopefully look at co-benefits of those working together and you come up with actual um, uh, targets and you cost it out and you say who's responsible for what and I'm like still after all these years an idealist and I'd like to see that kind of planning going on at both the state level and the Commonwealth level because that would make such a huge difference to so many Australians' lives. And you've been bringing together um, sort of some of these key players that you've mentioned in the Transforming Housing Project, I understand, that yeah. you've kind of been um, been a leader of. Ha- yeah. Have you made much um, headway in that and, and found much willingness um, on the part of governments to engage with you and, and listen to what you're saying? Yeah, there have has been a tremendous amount of willingness to listen and a general agreement around the problem and even some of the mechanisms. The challenge is to actually get the rubber to hit the road and to act. I think that a lot of local governments are chomping at the bit to do affordable housing strategies, but local governments get about 3% of tax income and, and they've been rate capped. So they really have to look to senior government to get some support at the moment I know that the state government is certainly treating affordable housing very seriously and I would love and I'm looking forward to seeing a plan that 
um, the partners that we're working with, who include private developers and private investors and philanthropic funders and uh, community housing organizations and local government, um, uh, something that they can work with. I think that consensus is difficult, but I think that consensus in, in the broad sense of sort of something that everyone can live with is possible, and I think that bringing people together to talk about these issues on an ongoing basis is really important. Well, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us, Carolyn, and uh, sounds like we uh, might be getting you back in again um, as we head towards a, a federal election. We might get more announcements along these lines. Who knows? Um, Carolyn Weitzman, um, Professor in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne. It's on Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.